Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, uh, as usual, Eric Whitehead at the uh, control panel, and Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. And we have a guest today who I introduce in just a few minutes. He is Ed Altman, the distinguished student and indeed scholar of the credit markets, especially the speculative great end of things. And we'll be talking about credit broadly and narrowly. But uh, first, I want to welcome Eric back to the land of the living. Eric and his family had a little bit of a bout with a bug, you know, which kind of, and, uh, you know, we were scared. You know, I, but Eric, I can't help but think that if you had not taken uh, the entire family on one of your adventure vacations to what was it, Evan? Was it um, Nigeria? Sudan, Ethiopia? I think uh, it was Sudan. <laughs> yes, uh, we've been uh, quite a number of places. Where, by the way, thank you very much, Jim, for inviting me this morning. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome, Ed. Yeah. But, I, but before we get into the credit situation, I would like to, you know, it's just been customary during this period of, uh, of uh, not ennui so much and not even principally annoyance, but of uh, just disorientation. It's been uh, our custom on this program to announce some new discovery, something constructive that has come out of this most irksome period of so-called lockdown. And my announcement today has to do with a new website. And Ed Alton, for all I know, you are a connoisseur. Eric, uh, and uh, Eric, I, I suspect is because he is a NASA guy. But I have come across something called spaceweather.com. And spaceweather.com is a website that tells you all about know, the, the heaven. And did you know, for example, Eric and Evan and Ed, that's uh, E to the third power, that tonight uh, will bring a Mercury-Venus conjunction. That when you look west, uh, step outside first, of course, look west, and you'll see Venus, and you'll see Mercury, and they are almost like uh, going to be one thing. That is available to you on spaceweather.com, and it's also Something I find um, most helpful in way of thinking about risk, there's a, a feature on this that has to do with uh, potentially hazardous, uh, uh, hazardous asteroids. You know, and everybody is worried about the bug, right? Walk around with masks on. And who is thinking of asteroids colliding with it? Well, if, you're, if you want to branch out, if you want to diversify your worry and uh, even your obsession, I urge you to uh, visit uh, spaceweather.com and just contemplate the list of potentially hazardous asteroids. Now, to be sure, none of them is uh, on a known collision course with Earth. But as we know with respect to COVID-19, you can worry even without uh, just a reasonable cause, right? It's, it's, it's allowed. In fact, I will go so far as to say it's required. So, um, Ed, when you're not thinking about risk of potentially uh, hazardous asteroids, what is it about the world of credit these days that gives you pause? Well, Jim, it's interesting, your analogy to the heavens. I was actually looking to the heavens in terms of the horizon anyway, as early as uh, a year or so ago. And I saw a lot of storm clouds out there that I wasn't the only one, perhaps yourself as well, and many of your writers have talked about the enormous buildup of debt in the world, and particularly in the United States being the epicenter with respect to corporate debt and government debt. Those are the two areas that I was looking at. And uh, particularly the corporate debt area was earmarked uh, as something to be concerned with. And as uh, at the end of 2019, indeed, the uh, percentage of uh, corporate debt as a percentage of uh, GDP, kind of like a debt to cash flow ratio for the economy, was at a record level. And we had reached three other peaks, so to speak, uh, in prior periods, 1991, 01, 02, and 08, 09, uh, 07, actually, before the 08, 09. And the peaks of this ratio were followed without 
exception by a uh, big spike in corporate defaults, in uh, financial crisis, coincidentally, each time with a recession. Now, Ed, uh, and that, um, you know, the, the, uh, Ed the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board himself, Jay Powell, Jerome Powell, has asserted that COVID-19 attacked an economy with no, as it, so to speak, with no financial preconditions, without any vulnerability. There was no financial crisis, either present or looming, says the man who ought to know. What uh, do you suppose the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board is overlooking, apart from the things you just mentioned? Is there, was there, are there any other signs and portents? Were there any, in, say, in January and February, say, in the banking system? Them, which was well, I the- think uh, it's easy in hindsight to say that there were uh, compared to what perhaps the Fed was saying. My experience over the years, Jim, is that the Fed is almost always more optimistic than any careful analyst of the credit markets, and they're looking at many other markets. And surely the stock market was doing very well, a 30% return in 2019, high-yield bonds earning 14 15% on average. And so those were the things that I think they were looking at without the fact that, of course, they knew we were in an unprecedented period of the longest benign credit cycle. And and here, here were the things that I think they were not looking at carefully. There are four indicators that I look at with respect to the credit markets and whether or not we are likely to go into a crest or even a, a crisis situation. Default rates on high-yield bonds. I've always looked at, as you may remember, even back in 1987 when we first met, always looked at default rates in the speculative-grade market as a clear barometer of how much risk there is in the system and how much potential distress. Recovery rates on what you can get back when you sell those bonds. And I've always looked at that very carefully with respect to supply and demand for distressed debt. Third, yield spreads that are acquired by investors. What was the market saying about the uh, situation? And this new concept that actually not so new anymore called the distress ratio, the percentage of high-yield bonds trading more than a 1,000 over treasuries. And then finally, liquidity. That's the very, very important key thing. And certainly Chairman Powell is probably looking at the enormous liquidity that was out there for the last few years, not only in high yield. Really, I'm looking at lately this triple B segment of the investment grade market, the lowest area. So those four or five there I was looking at, and all of them were inching up toward a more average credit year uh, after a large number of years of a benign period with low default rates, high recovery rates, low yield spreads, and lots of liquidity. So may I ask you this about another indicator? And I don't know whether you studied this. I, I find that, that bankruptcy data are rather hard to come by. But um, what was also striking to us at Grants about the so-called benign period uh, preceding the malign period was the uh, kind of the paucity of uh, trouble as registered, for example, in bank failures and as registered in uh, the incidence of bankruptcy among corporations as a whole, not just the speculative grade yes. ones. So the, yep. the, isn't isn't a sign of a of a non-bubble regime that of a, a normal you know cycle of distress and, and bankruptcy almost a a necessary one, no, and because we need to uh, uh, make room in the forest of capitalism for the new seedlings and perhaps to clear out the deadwood. 
Well, actually, Jim, I can um, I say that the bankruptcy rate, and particularly the bankruptcy among large corporations, and I define a large corporation greater than $100 million in liabilities. I know that's not huge, but that's one benchmark. And the second benchmark is uh, greater than a billion in liabilities. I look at that very carefully over time. And even in 2019, if you look carefully, there were 98 companies in the United States that had liabilities greater than a uh, 100 million that went bankrupt in 98. And that's uh, higher than the historic average, but not uh, a crisis. Um, and uh, incidentally, I can tell you, maybe this is jumping the gun a bit. So far this year, through uh, May 19th, you know, two days ago, there have already been 66 companies with liabilities greater than 100 million that have gone bankrupt, and even more incredible, 23 companies greater than a billion. If this continues for the rest of this year, and now I'm skipping the, the case that we're now in the crisis period uh, in the credit markets, no question, the benign cycle has changed to a stressed one and perhaps uh, a crisis that remains to be seen. If this continues for the rest of the year, there will be 61 U.S. companies, and I think it will be higher, that with greater than a billion in liabilities have gone bankrupt. And yet a lot of the markets now are opening up and there's lots of new issues of junk bonds. There's lots of movement in, in the uh, stock market uh, and uh, less so in the leveraged loan market. We can come back to that. But anyway, my point is that we will probably, my opinion, uh, my forecast, break the all-time record this year in terms of large company bankruptcies. And you're quite right. That's something to look at. Uh, you know what I, I, I take away from this, Ed? I take, this is perhaps a little um, aggressive uh, conclusion for so early in the cycle. I'm prepared to say that our uh, controlled, federally sponsored experiment in corporate life without income is generating the conclusion that you really do need income. What do you think, Evan? Is that? Uh, I think that's a great lesson. Yeah. Uh, based on how the market's reacting versus kind of the, the havoc you're seeing kind of on the ground in terms of uh, bankruptcy filing, I'd like to ask you a question. In 2014, Marty Fritzen came to our conference and he noted something unusual about the last bankruptcy cycle, which was in 2009, high-yield bankruptcies reached the highest they have ever done in the history of the U.S., and the following year, they fell below their long-term average. And at the time, Marty said it was because of the Fed and they intervened in the market. Right now, spreads have contracted dramatically from their uh, March highs, and liquidity, as you noted, is very high for bond issuance. Given that the Fed is doing much, much more now in 2020 than it did in 2007 through 2009, does the market basically predicting kind of a repeat of last cycle where there's a very short, uh, sharp default cycle and everything gets back to normal? And is that reasonable given on what the Fed is doing? I think the market is definitely thinking that. I don't think it's so reasonable because as I said before, there was this enormous debt buildup, much more than 2007 before that cycle. If you recall, that cycle, key problems were in the financial sector and the bank. Uh, and of course, that had a short-term impact on bankruptcies. But once the, the Fed particularly jumped in, you know, that was all corrected very quickly. This time, it's more fundamental. There's just enormous amounts of debt without the income to um, to cover it. Some people even call, there's a, a group of companies out there called zombies. Uh, now, Ed, before we, get, yeah, before we get into the into the walking dead, I want to, um, to ask you about the word bubble. And I was struck by your use of that uh, to characterize the credit situation in uh, late 19 and uh, 2019 into 2020 before everyone kind of decided there had been too much debt. Do you, is that a fair reading of your 
diagnosis of the pre-COVID-19 situation, was it in fact a debt bubble? I think so. Uh, and it was not just in the uh, United States. It was globally in the corporate sector, some countries in the household sector, not the U.S. government. There, there was just a lot of the increase in corporate earning, a lot of the increase in GDP could be attributed to the low-cost debt capital that was around for so long. And I think the Fed, is, as well as anyone else, was responsible for now, this Edward, low-cost debt. Ed Altman, I want to ask you this. So some people in public life that we could name have said that we must be careful that the cure is not worse than, worse than the disease. I think that individual is referring to the virus. Let us talk about interest rates. Uh, they were pressed down, or at least they fell down to just about zero around the time of the uh, world's financial crisis 10 years ago, and remained not much higher than zero for 10 years. Now, was that cure, that interest rate cure, is that turning out to be worse than the prospective disease of uh, liquidation and bankruptcy that might have ensued absent the central banker's strenuous attempts to suppress rates? I say suppress, uh, one could argue that, but I say suppress. Is that the case? Are these low rates responsible for what now ails us? And if so, would it have been better to let rates be what they would have been? That's a great question. I think you've looked at maybe more carefully than anyone on that question. Certainly, the low interest rates contributed to the risk-on situation that took place. And it also gave investors the motivation to look for higher risk instruments right. for any sort of yield at all. And so you had the supply and demand buildup uh, in leverage finance markets. But it also was in the um, investment grade area as well. And that was overlooked for a long time, this triple B sector. But to ah. answer your question, I think there was this euphoria of this low interest rates. Uh, by the way, it hasn't really helped Europe. And it helped the United States keep us, you know, growing at one and a half to two and a half percent a year, when in a normal big expansion would have been much. Uh, so it was a concern of mine also that we saw this growth, uh, modest growth at best, on the backs of this low interest rate uh, situation that everybody said, hey, risk on, let's take advantage of that. And that was only, in my opinion, that was building up to this um, scenario looking for a catalyst. And uh, I was speculating that catalyst would come from China or some other place. I'd never. It did. <laughs> in fact, it came from Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess that's right. I have to think about that. Maybe I was right after all with that, but the wrong uh, problem in China. Yeah. But then, of course, we saw things change very dramatically in March. They've come back in April in some of the areas, but not all of them. The default rate on high yield bonds, the bankruptcy rate, that is something that um, even though the stock market is booming, the new issue market is booming for um, the default rate of companies has not stopped. The Fed moving in, yes, incredibly. Yeah. They have backed so, uh, uh, you know, what, a what, lot of companies. What the, uh, one of the great puzzles of the moment is, um, is the stock market, which is knocking on the door of new highs for the stock market's money. As it seems, the COVID-19 affair never happened. And yet on Main Street, um, uh, food banks uh, proliferating, uh, distress, you know, deprivation of all kinds seems to be the order of the day. And, you know, I, I have the worst headline I ever wrote in grants, and there's some competition for this unwanted title, but the worst headline I ever wrote, one I w wish I had back again, is stock market needs spectacles. I think that was on the eve of one of the great booms of all times. Because I myself, much younger and uh, somewhat less wise, 
uh, thought that I had uh, the vision the stock market like. Well, the stock market sometimes is most prophetic, sometimes at other times it would seem to be uh, rather short-sighted. But how do you as a, well, I'm going to interrupt myself to observe that uh, we're about the same age, and Ed had his formative experience, yeah, his formative experience at Ebbets Field in 1953, I believe, when he yes. caught not one, but two foul Balls, Brooklyn, St. Louis game. I mean, so that, so you and I have been around the block once or twice, and we have seen the stock market do things that seemed most unreasonable, and yet with the passage of time seem to vindicate uh, the prescience of the collective mass of investors. So, does the stock market know something that we don't? Well, you know, that's a tough question. I'm scratching my head myself why the stock market is doing so well after this really incredible crisis situation we're in. And the only thing I can think of is that people don't have any place else to put their money besides the Put the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, they could put it underneath their pillow, but uh, they're, they're thinking that, you know, with a vaccine or some sort of a comeback in um, uh, the V-shaped recovery, that the market is going to really take off. So that's one thing. I, I used to believe the stock market was a very good indicator of uh, the coming real economy uh, situation. The disconnect now is like something I've never seen before, but I can't believe that the real economy is going to boom. Yeah, they're going to come back from the depths of the second quarter, in the early third quarter, but it's not going to boom compared to what it was um, a couple of years ago. And yet money is pouring in. Let me ask you this, if I may. As you survey the credit situation, um, both abroad and at home, you look at spreads, you look at the implication of bankruptcies and all manner of indicators. Speaking now, not only as an observer and a scholar, but also as, as someone who invests or who thinks about investment, do you see anything that is attractive in any of the markets that you cover so thoroughly? Not much. Not much at all. <laughs> so, personally trying to hedge the stock market because it's hard for me to believe it's going to continue to grow the way it has. In terms of uh, putting my money, I here's my, uh, uh, yeah, I do have something, Jim. Uh, hopefully, I'm not giving away some secret sauce, but I'm going to talk in general, uh, pretty specific terms about what I like. I like companies, even high yield and triple Bs, which I'd like to spend a little bit more time on, that have taken a beating cause of the current pandemic and other issues that may have been in terms of their stock price. But I'm fairly convinced will not default. Mm. If you invest in, for example, a um, high yield bond trading at 80 or 70 or a triple B that has been beaten down because of other fallen angels uh, taking place and are selling in the 80s. And you're pretty convinced that they're not going to default. There's only one place that they could go, and that's back to heaven, which is par. So if they're selling at 8 9% yields, and in the high yield, selling even above uh, 1000 and could default, then you're going to make digit returns probably within a very short period of time. Uh, and I believe there are many of those companies out there. On the other hand, you want to avoid default. And um, uh, we're coming out with a new fund starting in Europe shortly, probably within three months, called uh, Quality High Yield. And we're thinking about a quality investment grade. Because in the investment grade, area, like triple Bs, you're going to have, and started already, a lot of these companies being down junk. You want to stay away from those unless you wait downgraded, and then you believe they're not going to default. So I, I, 
considered as quality corporate bonds that have been hit for whatever reason, uh, but you believe are not going. I like to look at my Z-score models, and I, there's a whole family of them, not just one, the original one, that I look at, and the concept of volatility. How have uh, the markets been impacting them? To ask Jim's question a little bit differently, let's say that the average listener doesn't have the acumen that you do to kind of parse through company reports and find out which companies are likely to default and which ones are not. Based on your work, you have a view on kind of where defaults are likely to go the cycle and what recovery. Generically, if yeah, you're a big kind of investor like the Federal Reserve who just buys the HYG or the J&K, what kind of yield do you need to actually get involved in the market, just given those kind of parameters? Yeah. Let me take that, Evan, to start with. The forecasts of default rates going forward and bankruptcy rates. Uh, I do this with a fair amount of trepidation because uh, someone once said, never forecast. But if you do, never put it in writing. But if you do, do it frequently. And I think uh, I've learned over the years, I have to do it a little bit more frequently than once a year, which I used to do on forecasting default rates. So as of last week, forecast for the next 12 months, high yield bond default rate is about 9%. Historically speaking, that's almost a crisis situation. Um, uh, I look at a two standard deviation year above the mean uh, of at least 2%. But the next 12 months, I think will be slightly below 10%. I think I'm a little bit on the low side compared to some of the other forecasters in this area. 9% of high yield bonds defaulting. And the average price that these bonds will probably sell for, according to this uh, relationship that I've looked at between fault rates and recovery rates, uh, will be um, a little less than 30 cents on the dollar, which historically is quite a bit below the 46 cents on the dollar average for corporate bond defaults. Um, and that 9% is about three times the normal rate, that 9% default rate. But the real wild card is 2021. And whether or not this problem that we're in will persist into 2021 for large numbers of companies. And here, since I don't have a two-year forecast model. I'm looking at those that do and compare those that do with uh, what they're also saying about the one year. And most of them, investments, the rating agencies who do forecast are saying the two-year cumulative default rate will exceed 20% uh, 2021. Uh, and you can uh, back into the number of bankruptcies that would take and the uh, impact on recoveries. So a two-year 20% default rate is comparable to uh, 1991 and 012. It is higher than it was in the great financial crisis when the two-year default rate was about 17, 18%. And so that's what we're looking for in terms of uh, expected defaults. And defaults include, by the way, not only bankruptcy. We're talking about missed interest payments, the creditors taking a hit, maybe a distressed exchange. So they accept equity or new debt for the old debt, but at a loss par value. So we're including those in the default category. So we're talking about a 9%. Uh, and one final thing, Evan, on the forecast. I've decided to add to the forecast the impact of investment-grade debt being downgraded to junk. Uh, and I call that the crowding out effect and how much of that triple B sector was vulnerable to being downgraded at the beginning of 2019. Forget about the pandemic. What did it look like based on point in time bankruptcy prediction models rather than saying 
if they're triple B, you know, they're money good. We found that about 35 to 40% of the triple Bs out there had a profile that more looked high yield and junk. And 35%, I know, are not going to be downgraded. The rating agencies would never, ever do that. Even in the worst of years, you're finding their downgrades has been maybe 10% or so of high of, uh, investment grade debt, uh, high yield over a two-year period. But I'm thinking at this time, it's going to be a lot higher, maybe even 20%, uh, not 35, but 20%. And that means an additional $600 billion moving into the high-yield market or more. And that's going to crowd out, I believe, a number of the marginal companies at the bottom of the rung, the triple Cs and B minuses that might be considered zombies anyway. And that's going to increase the default rate somewhat from what it would have been before, certainly the default amount. So bottom line, the forecast for defaults, despite the stock markets going up, is going to remain quite high this year and into next year. We're pretty convinced. And um, uh, it doesn't mean that high-yield bonds won't do okay if uh, this incredible liquidity continues. Backstop but, but, but just to go through the parameters you listed there, so if you're expecting a 20% cumulative default over two years, and you're expecting recoveries of 36 cents, let's round up to 40 cents just to make the math easy. That means 2,000 basis points of uh, default, you recover 800 basis points, 1,200 basis points of loss. So that means in order to break even over, say, like a treasury security, you would need high-yield spreads to climb to at least 1,200 basis points? I'd have to go, uh, first of all, I expect a recovery of less than 36 cents, uh, about 30 cents on the dollar, but uh, even if it is 36 or 40. Uh, so that makes a loss rate of about the uh, percent of um, the um, uh, 20%. Uh, but I usually do it on an annual basis rather than a, a two-year basis. So I, w- I would uh, consider on an annual basis the loss rate from defaults. If you have, let's say, a, a 10% for one year and you lose 60% of that, you lose six basis points from defaults, you're going to have to make, and uh, the, uh, the government rate now is about, you know, let's say, 60 basis points. So you're going to have to make, um, uh, let's see, 1,000, 1,200, uh, you, you lost 600 over um, uh, 0.6, 660. You're going to have to, to, to about uh, 700 basis to be compensated to break even about 700 basis of some percent profit uh, uh, yield on the part of the market that doesn't default 1,200. Uh, that's for one year. Years, then of course uh, you, you're going to need that for, for uh, double that for two years, seven uh, percent each year. And historically, high yield bond investors uh, have earned about 2.4 percent a year more than Treasury. Uh, so to have an average year, I would say seven. Yeah, you're going to have to earn. Uh, your return is going to have to be about uh, promise yield about a little under 10 percent uh, a year. Okay. Well, that is the 10% is a very, very big and fat number. That's a great place to wind this up. This is the most enlightening discussion. Um, Ed Altman, scholar, uh, gentleman, and uh, Yankees fan, I guess, is a, I must have bring that to light. Yes, uh, but as you said, Jim, my crowning experience as a baseball spectator was in Ebbets Field in 1953. 
not only catching two balls, but Ebbets Field was a classic thing. You could sit, you're right on top of the players. Uh, and I must say, uh, I, I didn't become a Brooklyn Dodger fan from that, but uh, uh, I came close. But I'm still a great <laughs> Yankee fan. Yeah. Well, um, I must say, you had momentum on your side during the 1950s. Um, Ed Altman, thank you for joining us. Uh, Evan, thank you as well. And uh, Eric, uh, stay as healthy as you currently are. And no more trips to where was it, uh, Evan? Where did he go with? Uh, Sudan, Somalia, North Korea. Yeah. That was a, yeah, that was a, that was, and that was ill considered, Eric. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of uh, current Neil Grant's interest rate observer of the air.